is. It's a paradox. In counseling experiences that I've had, I've, I've met with people who have an abusive spouse, a tragically difficult way to live. On the one hand, they love their spouse and they can't imagine life without that person. But on the other hand, they hate that spouse and what it's done to them and their personhood. Love mixed with hate, a paradox. The other day when a few flakes were falling, one of my daughters said she dislikes snow and she didn't want it to snow. Well, only an hour later, as we drove out to do an errand, she said to me, I wish we'd get lots of snow, a real blizzard. I looked at her in amazement. I was thinking to myself, you're a paradox. Seeing the expression on my face, she quickly explained that the only reason she wanted to snow was so that there'd be no school the next day. She said, I don't like snow, but if it's going to snow, let's have a blizzard. Life is full of paradoxes. Christian living has paradoxes as well. There are a lot of things about living the Christian life that, that seem paradoxical. They seem contradictory. They don't always make sense. They seem incredible, but they're real. They're true. And they're necessary. For example, the Bible teaches that God is sovereign, that he works all things after the counsel of his own will. And yet the Bible teaches that you and I are free agents who make responsible decisions and we're accountable for the decisions we make even though God is sovereign. A paradox. The Bible teaches that Jesus is fully human and fully divine. It's a paradox. The Bible teaches that God is one. Monotheism. And yet that God is in three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. A paradox. These are great truths, but seemingly sometimes contradictory. One of the greatest truths of living the Christian life is another paradox, and it's this. Life in Christ requires that one be dead and alive. You heard me right. To live the fullness of the Christian life requires that one be dead and be alive. This is one of the greatest truths of Christian living. To understand this truth and to live this truth is to understand the secret of the God-empowered life. Don't miss this practical, essential, everyday truth. This week, the local news reported a paradoxical story. It was tragic, but at the same time, it was happy. Well, it was tragic for this reason. Cecil and Ruth are the parents of Private First Class Clayton Carpenter, who was reported killed in the ground war action of Operation Desert Storm just two hours before the war ended. They were devastated at the tragic news, and the whole small town in Kansas joined in the grieving and the support for the devastated family, their only son gone. But the story was also happy. It was happy for this reason. Several days after the news of his death, Ruth, the mother, received a phone call from Saudi Arabia. And it was her son, Clayton, calling from an army hospital recovering from shrapnel wounds. He was alive and well, relatively speaking, and thrilled to be able to reverse the heart-rending mistake that the army had made. It took him about 30 minutes of telling secrets from his life and from their family life to convince his shocked mother that, in fact, he really was alive and this was her son. So she now could be transformed from grief to elated exultation. For Clayton's parents, their son was dead, but he was alive. Every Christian must understand two facts about the Christian life. 
First, we must experience the pain and the reality of our death. And secondly, the joy of our resurrected life in Christ. Turn to our continuing study in the book of Galatians as we look at the centrality and the power of the cross of Jesus Christ and how this prepares us to understand Easter and how to really celebrate Easter the right way. Galatians chapter 2 is our passage. Let's read in unison the passage you have on your insert in your worship folder. Verses 15 through 21. Reading together. We who are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners know that a man is not justified by observing the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we, too, have put our faith in Jesus Christ, that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by observing the law, because by observing the law, no one will be justified. If, while we seek to be justified in Christ, It becomes evident that we ourselves are sinners. Does that mean that Christ promotes sin? Absolutely not. If I rebuild what I destroyed, I prove that I am a lawbreaker. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live for God. I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The death I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. This passage gives us the secret to being dead and alive. Before we look at the actual seeming paradox of being dead and alive, Let's look at the context in which Paul wrote these great truths. He's writing, as I mentioned last week, a circular letter to the different Galatian churches to address some problem of the Judaizers. The Judaizers were Jewish Christians who said that certain ceremonial laws and practices of the Old Testament were still now binding on Christians in the New Testament church. They felt that the Apostle Paul wasn't a true apostle because he was saying, that we could make the gospel more appealing, as they thought, to the Gentiles by removing these essential requirements like circumcision from Christian practice. So they said, Paul, you're not for real, and you've watered down the gospel. This problem's been called the problem of Galatianism because it's addressed in this letter, this book. But more commonly, it's called the problem of legalism, which the church has been fighting throughout its history, and we'll talk more specifically about that next Sunday. But... He essentially brought up two questions that were being addressed to him, and he's answering these questions, these charges, these misunderstandings. The first question is this. Can I earn acceptance with God by my goodness? Can I be acceptable to God by my own goodness? This is one of the greatest religious questions of all time. Every religion in the world seeks to answer this question. Can I earn acceptance with God by my own goodness? And in every case that I know of, the answer is yes, of all the religions of the world. Mormonism to Judaism, Baha'ism to Islam, Jehovah's Witnesses to Hinduism. The answer is always the same. I must earn my acceptance with God. I must discipline myself to be a better person so I will be acceptable. I must save myself. Yet here is the unmistakable answer that the Apostle Paul gives to that question. Only faith in Christ's goodness can justify me. 
Only faith in Christ's goodness can justify me. Look at verse 16. It's one of the key verses of the entire book of Galatians. He says, Know that a man is not justified, that is, made right with God, made righteous by observing the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we, too, have put our faith in Christ Jesus that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by observing the law. Because by observing the law, no one will be justified. Three times in the same verse, he says, no way, no way can you be justified, can you be made right with God on your own terms, on your own righteousness. This is why the cross of Christ is the center point of history. It contradicts everyone who's around us. It flies in the face of all the religions of the world. And it's this, that the cross of Christ is the only means by which we can find righteousness with God, find acceptance with God, find salvation. That's why many of our hymns have this truth as a center point of what they say. I think of George Bernard's famous hymn, The Old Rugged Cross. Third stanza says, In the old rugged cross stained with blood so divine, a wondrous beauty I see. For it was on that old cross Jesus suffered and died to pardon and sanctify me. So... I'll cherish the old rugged cross. That's our hope. That's the only way we can find acceptance with God. So in this first question, can I earn acceptance with God by my goodness? The answer is absolutely not. Only by faith in Christ's goodness can I find righteousness, peace, forgiveness. The second question is related to the answer of the first. And it's important to understand this context for you to understand this whole concept of being dead and alive. And the question is this. If I don't need the law to become good, isn't Christ encouraging sin? Look at verse 17. If, while we seek to be justified in Christ, that is, through faith in Him, it becomes evident that we ourselves are sinners, that is, we're sinning, doing bad things, does that mean that Christ promotes sin? What he's saying is this, that the legalists are accusing Paul of being dangerous. They're saying to him, look, by eliminating the law, you are eliminating the moral cause, the moral reason why people should be good. If you say all they have to do is trust Christ alone for justification, they're going to say, thank you very much, and go out and do their own thing. Of course, that is dangerous. A dangerous idea. And there are millions of Christians who live exactly that way. There are millions of Americans who say, well, I believe in Jesus. I believe he died for me. And since I believe he died for me, well, it's a good thing to know my sins are forgiven. Now I can do my own thing, live my own way. It doesn't matter if I commit immorality. It doesn't matter if I lie or I cheat or I don't forgive others or I waste my resources or my time or I don't ask for forgiveness of other people and I don't show a humble spirit. None of those things matter because I can just go to Jesus and say, Jesus, please forgive me for all that bad stuff I did. Thank you very much. And I can get back to what I was doing before. That's antinomianism. That's moral chaos. It's wrong. So how does Paul answer this question, this charge, this accusation? His answer is no. I died to law-keeping by living for God. That is, we don't quit keeping the law so that we can be lawless and immoral, but we quit being focused on the law because our motivation for living has been replaced by something better. The spirit of the living God in me. Look at verses 18 through 21. He says, if I rebuild what I destroyed, that is, the law, try to depend on the law, all I'm going to prove is that I'm a lawbreaker, he says in verse 18. All I'll find out is, sure enough, I'm not as good as the law says I ought to be. That doesn't solve anything. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live for God. Here's the change that happened in him. He says, I've been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. 
the life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God. He loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God. For if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. Paul's saying this. When I was a Pharisee, when I was a legalistic Jew, boy, did I try hard to do everything God asked me to do. And the harder I tried, the more proud I got of the fact that I was getting closer, but I realized I never had arrived. And when I was out there trying to kill these people who were saying Jesus was the Messiah and salvation could be through him, suddenly I encountered the living God through his son, Jesus Christ. And immediately, all my righteousness and all the things I tried to do for years, he tells about this in Philippians chapter 3, he says, I consider them a pile of manure in comparison. Just a pile of rubbish. He literally says that. In comparison to the difference now. Instead of being driven by the law will keep me straight, now the Son of God Himself by the Spirit came into my life and now I'm alive in Christ and I died to those elementary principles, those humanistic religious principles that couldn't change me one bit. There's no comparison between the two lives. Let me give you an analogy that may help you understand what happened here and what should happen to every Christian. When I was a child, my father made me eat every vegetable that was served at the table. It was his idea that if my mother prepared a meal, we as respectful children should eat all of the meal, that is, all parts of the meal, and not turn up our nose at it as we were wont to do. Well, it turned out that I didn't really like cauliflower, and I hated squash, and I despised asparagus. But I ate all of those vegetables because it was the law at our dinner table. So I resentfully kept the law of my father out of respect for him. But you know what? Today, today I voluntarily eat squash. I enjoy asparagus and I actually love cauliflower. I even have seconds and thirds since our kids don't like vegetables very much. But what happened? What happened to me? My motivation changed from law to desire. Before, I had to eat the vegetables, and I didn't like them. And now, without the law, there is no one in our home that requires that I eat all the vegetables, and yet I want to eat them. And Paul's saying, that's what happened to me, and that's what should happen to everyone who's in Christ. It is a revolutionary view of life. It is a revolutionary way of living. It is a complete transformation of our motivation. That's why faith in Christ alone won't make us worse sinners, he says. Instead, it will change us. And our old nature will die. And now we will have the godly want-tos instead of only the legal have-tos. What a way to live. That's the way you and I should live. Now, these are the two confusing questions then. And these are the answers. And you're saying, well, Clyde, great. But I don't see what this has to do with living and dying. The paradox that you were talking about at the beginning. Well, Let's look at this earlier statement that every Christian must understand and experience death and life and see how it is we live the Christian life. The paradoxical solution is right here in verse 20. That's why this verse is such a famous verse, and many of you maybe have memorized it. He says, I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. This says three things I hope you will never in your life forget. Always remember these three things that Galatians 2.20 is telling us. Number one, every Christian must die. Every Christian must die. 
You might be saying, Clyde, what on earth are you talking about? I thought the Christian life was all about life. Eternal life. Abundant life. What's the deal? The deal is this. You can't have Christ's resurrection life without Christ's crucifixion. That's the amazing paradox of Christian living. There's no life without death. There's no crown without the cross. There's no victory without defeat. Everybody wants the crown. Everyone wants life. Everyone wants victory. No one wants death. No one wants defeat. No one wants the cross. But to have the former, you've got to have the latter. That's what Paul is saying here. There are two different deaths. Every Christian must die apart from your physical death. Apart from the fact that you and I will all die physically unless Christ comes first. We all must, as Christians, experience two deaths. Paul is saying here, the first death the New Testament teaches us about is the death to sin. It is to die to sin's condemnation. And it's not something you do. It's something God does for you. The moment you are united with Christ legally, something happens to you. At that moment, you are freed from sin's condemnation. Romans chapter 6 talks about this. And now that you're free from sin's condemnation, now you are able, through that freedom, to make a choice about a second death. And this is the death to self. So the first death is death to sin. The second death is the death to self. And this is something you do. The first is something God does. This is what you do. You choose consciously to deny your sin, to deny your flesh or carnal nature. It's something we choose to do in the power of the Spirit that enables us to live in the power of Christ and enables us to defeat and shy away from the power of sinful self. It started the day you repented of your sins and came to Christ. That's when this started. But it's a day-by-day experience. It's a day-by-day act of obedience, a choice that you and I make. Now, it's these two deaths that Paul's referring to when he says, I'm crucified with Christ and I no longer live. He's talking about these two deaths. You have to understand this and you have to experience this before you move into the second great truth of this verse. The second great truth is every Christian must live. Every Christian must die, but secondly, every Christian must live. He says, but Christ lives in me. I'm dead. I'm crucified with Christ, but... I'm still alive, but I'm alive through Christ who lives in me. The old Paul is dead. The law-keeping Paul is dead. The I have to uh, law that drove Paul is dead. But now it's the I want to that's come to life inside of Paul that's changed him completely. A few days ago, one of our uh, members here at Mission Hills uh, introduced me to a friend of his that he's been witnessing to for some years and uh, and as known as a friend, and had some questions, some uh, religious or spiritual questions. We sat down and we began to talk, and this uh, young man said to me, uh, I'm confused and I'm offended by uh, some well-meaning people who call themselves Christians who have been saying to me, and he told me the story of what happened, how I should shape up my life, and how I should change my behavior, and how I should conform to their lifestyle and their values. I immediately realized what was going on, and I said, it's not going to work. I said, well, why? I said, because the law was never given to change us. It only shows us our inability to be right and to do right. And it shows us our need for God's grace. It's Christ-like in us that empowers us to do God's will. For example, what if you were so angry today that you wanted to strike someone? You wanted to punch that person's lights out. And so they called up and the men with the white... Uh, uniforms came and they put a straitjacket on you. Was it like this? I it's, it hasn't been a long time since I had a straitjacket on, but <clears throat> let's say they put the straitjacket on me 
or on you, I should say, you're the violent one, and uh, and you realize immediately that you can't strike that person that you're so furious at. The straitjacket will keep you from being violent, and it'll hold you still, but the fact is it hasn't changed one iota of how you feel inside. You are still mad, you're still angry, and you still would like to be violent, you're just prevented from doing so. And I said to this young man, all they're doing is trying to put a straitjacket on you, but it doesn't change you inside one bit. And I said, that's what all religions do. They say, here's a straitjacket. Try our straitjacket. Oh, no. Our straitjacket is better. It works for these reasons. Please put this one on. And so all these people in the world are putting different straitjackets on, but it hasn't changed the human heart. And it's the power of Jesus Christ, Paul says, that changed our heart. And that motivates us in a new way, in a different way. Sort of like the little boy who was ordered by his father to go sit in the corner for his punishment. So the boy sat in the corner and he looked up at his father and he said, well, I'm sitting down on the outside, but I'm standing up on the inside. Well, that's exactly, exactly what the law does. It tells us where we should go, what we should do, but it shows us inside how desperately we need forgiveness and life to replace our death. Christ life. Of course, that's what baptism is all about. Baptism is a symbol of this great truth. Those of you who have been baptized know that. Those of you who haven't, let me tell you that in baptism, what's happening is you're saying, I am burying the old life and I'm dying. It's symbolically saying, I know I'm dead to the old life, dead to sin. And I'm choosing to bury it. And like Christ, I too am identifying with his resurrection. And as he was raised to life, I too am raised to life with Christ. And now I'm going to live that new life with that new motivation empowering me. That's the secret to the Christian life. So that's why the church is always, always focused on these two big issues. The cross, the crucifixion of Christ, which represents the necessary death of Christ for us and our necessary death with him, the sin. And secondly, Easter, which we'll celebrate in three weeks. The resurrection, the conquering uh, over that death, and we identify with that, and that is our life too. Now, there'll be hundreds of people from our community, and I hope you'll invite them to come and be here on that Sunday, but many of them won't understand the secret to Easter, that this is what it's all about, this incredible paradox, these two contradictory statements, which in fact are essential to the new life, the dynamic life in Christ. There's a third thing that's implied here in what the Apostle Paul is teaching in verse 20, and it's taught throughout the New Testament, and it's reminded to us taught to us specifically by Jesus, and that's this. Every Christian must take up his or her cross. These are the three great things I hope you never forget. First, every Christian must die. Second, every Christian must live. Thirdly, every Christian must take up his or her cross. Jesus said in Mark 8.31 these words, The Son of Man, meaning he, the Son of Man must suffer many things, must be rejected, must be killed, and after three days rise again. Notice the must. It's not optional for Jesus. It had to happen. Three verses later, in Mark 8.34, he says this. If anyone, any disciple, anyone who believes in me, would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. In other words, this is not optional either. If Christ must go to the cross, his followers must also take up their cross. What is Jesus saying, and what on earth does this mean, to take up our cross? As we conclude, let me just say three things that it means for you and me. Listen carefully. This is the secret of spiritual power in your life and in this church. First, to take up our cross means to deny ourselves. Deny yourself. It means to say no to our pride. 
It means to say no to our selfishness. It means no to wasting our time. It, it means to, to, instead of saying, I'll watch this hour-long television program and add to my couch potato record, I instead am going to read this book on discipleship. No, instead I'm going to meditate on the Psalms and find the renewal and the refreshment that my spirit needs. It's saying no to things that I might normally want in my flesh nature, my selfish nature, or my proud nature. Saying no to that and saying, yes, I'll choose this because it's right. It's what Christ wants me to do. Denying ourselves. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the German pastor and theologian who was executed by the Nazis for his convictions, once wrote in his excellent little book, Cost of Discipleship, these words. When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. What he meant was, come to the place where you say no to yourself and yes to him, so that out of the deadness and the denial can come his life, his power, his glory. It's voluntarily something you do to choose the way of Christ. The second thing that taking up your cross is all about is to dedicate yourself. Deny yourself first, dedicate yourself second. When Jesus dedicated himself to the Father's will, it was completely. I mean, when he got on the cross, it wasn't part of him. Well, I'll dedicate most of my body, but I'm going to hold this back. No, his whole cross, his whole life, uh, his whole life was given to the cross. And when you and I follow in his footsteps and take up our cross, we're saying, Lord, we dedicate ourselves completely too. Now, there's a problem here. The problem is this. Similar to a person who owns a 1,000-acre ranch and sells it to someone else but chooses to keep one acre in the middle of the ranch for himself. In most states, there are laws that say you can build an access road across the surrounding property to that one acre. In the life of a Christian, when you say, Lord, here I dedicate this to you, I give this to you, you bought me with a price, here I am, except I want to keep this part for me. The problem with that is that there are territorial rights to Satan, the evil one, to come across that surrounding property right to that one territory we have not given up, and it controls us, and it manipulates us. And we say, where's the power in my life? Where's the answered prayer in my life? Where's the presence of God in my life? Why don't things work out the way I thought they would? Why don't I have victory in Christ? The reason is that we give token dedication, but we don't say, here I am, completely everything. It's yours. My life, my time, my money, my values, my family, my priorities, my business. All of these things are yours. Lord, it's on the altar. Do what you want with it. The third thing that taking up the cross means is not only to deny ourselves and dedicate ourselves, but finally to declare ourselves. To declare ourselves. Jesus got up on the cross naked for you and me before the whole world. He said, here I am, the Son of God, dying for you. There is no such thing as a secret Savior. Jesus publicly was disgraced. And publicly was put on the cross. And there is no such thing as secret service discipleship either. There are no secret Christians in Jesus' plan. Jesus said, if you're ashamed of him, he'll be ashamed of you before his father. But if we're not ashamed of him and we confess him here, he will confess us before the father in heaven. Isn't it incredible that we fear people more than God? We protect our reputation. We defend our name. We, we work hard to impress others with our assets. But what about the name above all names? And what about God's reputation? And what about people's impression of Christ? How foolish we become. You know why? We're afraid of the consequences, aren't we? You look at the front page of the Denver Post today, 
and what the First Presbyterian Church of Boulder is experiencing, and you know exactly what I'm talking about. When you take a stand for what the Bible teaches and for Jesus Christ, you will pay a price. And the media will mock you, and the whole town will come down your throat, and they will misrepresent you and misjudge you and misclassify you as they did to Christ. And that's what's happening to that church. And that could happen to you, and that's why we're afraid to declare ourselves. But on your job, you need to declare yourself. In your family, you need to declare yourself and provide spiritual leadership. In your friendships and relationships, you must declare yourself. No wonder the church can be weak. No wonder our spiritual lives can be uh, weakened and, and so uh, puny compared to the living life of Christ. Because we refuse to take that stand. When we take the stand, the power comes with it. The enablement comes with it. The courage comes with it. During the Revolutionary War, a young man came up to General George Washington and said to him, Washington, General Washington, I, I want you to know that I believe in you and your cause and I fully support you. General Washington graciously thanked him and asked him, what regiment are you in, son? Under whose command do you serve and uh, what uniform do you wear? Oh, answered the man, I'm not in the army. I'm, I'm just a civilian. General Washington looked at him and replied, young man, if you believe in me and my cause, you join the army. You put on a uniform and you get yourself a rifle and fight. That's what Jesus says. Are you a civilian or are you a soldier of Christ? He issues this challenge to you and to me today. It's a challenge of the cross. But watch out. If you respond and if you go with it, you'll be amazed at what Jesus will do through you and in you. That's the power of God. That's what Paul was talking about. I'm not alive anymore. It's Christ living in me and through me. What a great way to live. Steve Green had a great album that came out back in 1986 called For God and God Alone. It has great songs on it. But he concludes all those beautiful songs and challenges about Christian discipleship with an invitation. It's the song Enter In. I'd like to read the words to you as we conclude this morning. The words go like this. Nothing chills the heart of man like passing through death's gate Yet to him who enters daily, death's a glorious fate. Dearly beloved, we're gathered here to be a holy bride and daily cross death's threshold to the holy life inside. The conflict still continues, raging deep within my soul. It's a battle. My spirit wars against my flesh in a struggle for control. My only hope is full surrender. So with each borrowed breath, I inhale the spirit's will for me to die a deeper death. And the chorus says, enter in, enter in, surrender to the Spirit's call to die and enter in. Enter in and find peace within. The holy life awaits you. Enter in. I'd like to conclude our service today differently than we do most Sundays. I'd like to invite you to enter in. To enter into a life of saying, I'm willing to die to self, and I want to live to Christ. Oh God, help me. I receive that invitation to enter in. I know there's a battle waging inside, but I want you to have the victory, O oh Spirit of God. Those of you who have never received Christ, I invite you to enter into this life. Maybe you've been trying for years in your own strength to make your life work, to make it happen, to somehow do it, and it hasn't happened. The reason it hasn't is because it's the law. The law can't change you. I invite you to receive 
the living Christ into your life. Secondly, to those of you who know Christ, and you've given your lives to Christ, you know that what Paul has said in this passage, and the Spirit's been speaking to you about making some decisions, about denying yourself and dedicating yourself and declaring yourself. And I invite you to do so today. You come and stand here at the front with me. I ask you to remain seated as we sing this song, Have Thine Own Way, Lord, so that others can come out, stand here, either receive Christ or say, Lord, here I am. I want to die. I dedicate myself to you. I declare myself to you. Let's come. It's 371 in I realize that walking forward doesn't change anybody. It's not walking and standing here or kneeling here that changes your life. But what does do it is a decision. A decision to say, Jesus, I will deny myself and say yes to you. I will dedicate all of me, not part of me, to you. And I'm willing to declare myself and say, here I am. I don't care what anybody else thinks, what anybody else sees. Here I am. I stand before you as you stood before me on the cross. If God's Spirit speaking to you, don't back down. Don't back down. I'm not saying that to manipulate you to come up here. I'm saying that for you to make the decisions you need to make in your life. If you know you've been denying Him before your friends or family or co-workers, take a stand. If you know that you have been giving in to territory in your life, to the evil one, and it's having conquering power in your life, make the decision for Christ to release you from that bondage today. Don't wait Let's sing the final stanza and conclude. Come if God's speaking to you.
Let's all stand together. There's a final song that Pastor Dave is going to lead us in. And I'd like to invite those who are standing here at the front to stay for just a few minutes after the service. I'd like to talk to you for just a few moments. Those of you who come forward, anyone else that would like to, as the service concludes, would like to come up here to talk to you for a few moments. The rest of you will be dismissed as we sing this song. Pastor Dave. The greatest thing in all of my life. experience this week. Go with God's blessing. Those of you who came forward, stay here for a few minutes.